0: John 12 says, The next day the large crowd that had come to feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from the Seda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified.
1: i remember a few summers ago i got to go down to disneyland with my family it was a great trip how many of you guys have been to disneyland before just so i know who i'm talking to okay fantastic so at disneyland in case you don't know uh obviously there are a lot of characters associated with disney and these characters will roam through the park and you can stop them for photographs or autographs. You can get in line to like, shake their hand and talk with them, all this kind of stuff. And I am not super big into the characters. And I don't normally care so much about the mascots walking around. But this summer, Disney and Marvel had just recently partnered up. And as I was going through the park, out of one of the back doors comes Captain America. Now, I'm more of Team Iron Man, personally. How many of you are Team Iron Man for me here? Great. How many of you are Team Captain America? Love you still. How many of you have no idea who either of those people are? A couple. Okay. All right. Well, Captain America, the first Avenger, steps out into the streets of Disney. And I think to myself, okay, I'm here. I I might as well. Like, he's a good second choice, right? Tony's busy. He can't be here right now. Captain America, that works. So I get in line, and as I get up to the line, or as I get through the line, as I get up to Captain America, I shake his hand. He talks with me. Uh, We take a photo in this. But as he spoke with me, it struck me that, like, I knew that this was a character. I knew this guy was hired to do this. But he was exactly what I imagined Captain America to be like. He was good-natured. He was charismatic. He even encouraged me in the work that I get to do here, which was kind of weird. Um, but just, you know, he was this—he was everything that I thought Captain America would be, right? Some of you may have had the opportunity to meet someone that you've wanted to meet for really a really long time. And when we get to meet celebrities or authors or influencers, they can be the kindest people. Right? Keanu Reeves always gets credit for being one of the nicest guys. Even you know, though he stars in John Wick 4, which is not necessarily the nicest movie. He's an action star, but he offstage is this like gentle and kind and compassionate man. And then you get people who... When you meet them, you realize you like their personality on screen a lot more than you like their personality in person. They might not live up to the expectations that we have. Today we're going to be seeing expectations come to a clash. We are going to see how Jesus is nothing like the expectations that the people in today's story had for him, and actually how Jesus goes above and beyond what they could imagine. We're going to be looking at four reactions, four groups of people in this text, and we're going to see who Jesus really is and what it means for us if we follow him today. So our passage picks up in John 12, verse 12, and I just want to pray again for us as we get into the word. Father God, your word is good. You have given us the scriptures to know you. Jesus, you are called the word of God. And so I pray that today we would know you better by the time we're done than when we came in. And Father, I pray that you would remove from us any obstacle, anything in the way. Father, if we come in with expectations about who you're supposed to be, I pray that you would instead meet us with who you really are. And Jesus, thank you that in the middle of everything, you have come. As we've just sang with the kids, you have come to us. So Lord, bring us to yourself this day, I pray in your name. Amen. So verse 12 It's the start of John's account of what we call the triumphal entry. And it doesn't seem like very much at first. It's two sentences and then some narrator's commentary. John's intentions are reflected in where he spends his time. He's less concerned with what happened. He's more concerned with what it all means because it happened and how we fit into the story as well. So let's see how the story plays out. Verse 12. And verse 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus comes to Jerusalem the day after Mary has anointed him. That's what we read and studied and looked into last week. It's now the week of Passover. And people from all over the land were coming to Jerusalem to be together to celebrate and worship. Commentators suggest that Jerusalem's population could have swelled up to three times its normal size. So there was lots of opportunity, lots of buzz, lots of chatter and rumors between the locals and the pilgrims about this man, this miracle worker, this prophet named Jesus. They would have swapped stories all over the place. And when this crowd hears that Jesus is coming to town, they get excited frantic. The roar and praise and adoration is loud, and their actions reflect their expectations. So, let's meet the Jesus that the crowds wanted. First, we'll consider the palm branches. The palm branch was in use for hundreds of years as a national symbol for Israel. It was a symbol of national pride. It was political. Palm branches were actually pressed into the coin's Uh, uh, the Jewish coins, since the time of the Second Maccabean Revolt, which took place between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Excuse me. (coughs) This was, uh, the palm branch was a statement of independence, okay, that the Jews would not be ruled by some foreign power or some outside influence. So they're waving their palm branches, they're making a statement just by what they're doing. But we see recorded here, obviously, they also actually say things. They are making statements with their voice. Their exclamations come from Psalm 118. And verse 25 says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. That word save us is the word Hosanna. Hosanna means save us now or give salvation now. It's a call for deliverance. The psalmist in Psalm 118 spends the first 24 verses declaring that God is good, that his love is steadfast, that he has the ability to save in times of trouble, that it is good to trust in the Lord and not in man, and that salvation is only from God. So we look at today's context. They're saying, Hosanna, God save us now, and the Jews, they were under occupation by Rome. Their call for deliverance from God was a cry for Rome to be overthrown, that God's people would return to their rightful place as free citizens under God's lordship, not some pagan and foreign lordship. But then they go farther. It's not just save us now. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And this also is from Psalm 118, the next verse. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, this sounds like a common blessing, but the crowd was doing something more here. See, throughout Israel's history, God had been raising up people to speak and to act and to work in his name for the sake of his people. Prophets and priests and kings were raised up by God to guide God's people in knowing him in serving Him, in loving Him. God appointed and anointed these people with His Spirit to lead. But there is a special deliverer that was coming who was prophesied all through the Jewish Scriptures, our Old Testament. And this deliverer would even deliver God's people from their sins. Not just what's out there, but what's in here. This was their Messiah, which means anointed or chosen. These people, they were waiting for their great Messiah to deliver them from all oppression and set up his kingdom forever. So there was incredible anticipation for when this person would show up. Here in John's Gospel, the crowd recognizes that Jesus is not just your average traveler. He's not just a pilgrim on the way to Passover. There's something unique about him. And so he doesn't receive just a common blessing. The crowds identify that Jesus came in the name of the Lord. In effect, they saw his miracles and they thought, this is him. This is the guy. This is who we're waiting for. And they've asked in previous chapters in John questions like, can this be the Christ? Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. So they're putting some of the pieces together. And we know that this is the emphasis that they have because they finish their exclamation by saying, even the king of Israel. They're elevating Jesus to be the king who would be coming. And as an aside, it's interesting that John includes the story of Mary anointing Jesus immediately before him riding into Jerusalem. He, Jesus, the king, being anointed just hours before he rides into his holy city. The people might not have seen Mary's anointing. Some of them would have. But they certainly saw Jesus as worthy to be king. It's also significant that up till this point, there's only been, about, there's only been two times in John's gospel where the kingship of Jesus is acknowledged. The first was when Jesus calls Nathanael to follow him. This is John chapter 1, and it says this Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, and we're going to see Philip a little later on today, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. There's a little bit of repeated language, right? We heard Julia when she was reading through the whole text, and we're going to get there. But Son of God shows up, King of Israel shows up, Philip is a key player. So stuff's going on. But Nathanael's exclamation here is good, it's proper. His eyes have been opened to see truth and to understand more of who Jesus really is. The second time that Jesus' kingship is emphasized is not so good. It happens in John 6. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 on five barley loaves and two fish. The people are satisfied. There was way too much food, and they are thrilled with what Jesus could do. They've seen his miracle, and they love that he can provide for their needs. And so in John 6, verse 15, we read that Jesus perceived then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When it comes to today's passage it's no surprise then that John identifies that the crowds here again are looking to Jesus because of the signs and the wonders that he has performed. Jumping down to verse 17 we'll come back to the other verses in a minute. It says the crowds, or sorry, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowds went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. They came with Jesus from Bethany, and the crowds that came from Jerusalem to meet Jesus on the way, they were looking for the man who apparently had power even over death, even to command death to release its hold on a person. And if anyone in the crowd was astute, if they were paying attention, they would have noticed that the things Jesus was doing and the things Jesus was saying lined up with the Messiah that they were waiting for. So maybe they were asking, could Jesus be the one who will deliver us from Rome and the crushing weight of oppression? Will he throw off the shackles of political and social oppression? Maybe he will be the one to lead us in victory. Could Jesus be our powerful, our unstoppable king? The crowds wanted that Jesus. Is that the Jesus that we want? We find ourselves in all sorts of stressful and challenging circumstances, and I don't have to list them. We live them every day. Different for each of us, but common. We know what it's like to struggle. And sometimes we use religion and faith as the answer or antidote to those things. We expect that God will do something. He is a powerful God after all. We expect him to overcome every single challenge in our lives. Maybe we think our allegiance to God means that God owes us something in return. So are we coming to Jesus just to solve the problems that we have in this life? And is that all that Jesus came to do? That's our first group of people, the crowds. Our second group are Jesus' own disciples. And we get to see them in verse 16. So let's meet the Jesus the disciples wanted. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, this is not a slight or a judgment against the disciples. The emphasis is more on that they remembered later than on the fact that they misunderstood now. But I find myself alongside the disciples quite often. I don't normally know what God is doing in the middle of what he's doing. Sometimes I get a glimpse afterwards on his purposes and what he was accomplishing. About a week ago, I had a really long day. I had a lot going on. It was like a 12-hour day. And I'm the kind of person who, if I've got to do two things in a day, it's too many things, right? I, I'm, qu- I'm quiet. I'm chill. I like to just recharge on my own. But this was a full day. Go, 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 go. And I had made plans in the evening time still to go and meet up with some friends. And I just thought, you know what? I, I don't have the energy for this. So I canceled on them. Uh, my brother was doing something at home. I told him, hey, you know what? I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to help him with his, with his work. <clears throat> but when I got home, didn't realize that he had a friend over who was also helping with his work, and that's fine. Uh, I'm friends with her as well, so it was was fine. But I was just sitting at home thinking, okay, I'm going to vibe. I'm just going to chill. I just, quiet night. Quiet night is what I need. And they come upstairs at the end of their work, and he's over in the kitchen, and she's sitting in the living room talking to me, and we're chatting, and I kid you not, like three seconds in, two questions in, she goes, so Brody, have you figured out the meaning of life yet? And she meant it. Like, she didn't ask the question just off the cuff. She, she wanted to know. And I'm sitting there like, it was Sunday today. I was at church till three. I went out on some errands. I went out for dinner. These are good things, but I'm tired. I just want to be quiet. And here I am having this hour and a half now long conversation about God and death and purpose. I started by saying, well, you're in luck. We actually just finished a series at church called Elephant in the Room, and our last question was, what's the meaning of life? So, you know, I could have just popped that on the TV. I didn't, but it's okay. Um, but there were all these questions she was asking, and about reincarnation, and what happens once you die, and like why we're here, and it was, it was a fantastic conversation. And I felt bad until after she had gone home. That I had canceled on my friends that night because I didn't know what the story was. I thought I was tired. I thought I was exhausted. But God had more in mind. You know, it's, it's not about like, like, I was available. I didn't have any special words. I was stumbling over different things. I wasn't ready for the conversation, Right. But God had this moment for her where she got to ask questions to a couple of close Christian friends. She's not a Christian, right? That was safe. And I was at home for that. I didn't know that until afterwards, right? And, and, and we get these experiences where we don't get to see what's going on in the moment until it's passed. And, and so I, I identify with the disciples quite a bit. But they, along the way, they're constantly wondering, what is Jesus doing? Jesus, why are you saying that thing? Why are you doing that thing? Why are you with those people? Like, we've got other better things to do sometimes. And all along the way, Jesus corrects them. Jesus lifts them up. Jesus puts them back on path. Jesus invites them in. And he offers his love and his grace to them. He extends compassion. And even after he rose from the dead, they still had a lot of growth to go. We read in Acts different stories about the disciples. You know, there's one where where Paul has to call out Peter for something that Peter does. Still growing. But now on the other side, with the Spirit of God in them. But when we come to Jesus with our expectations, when he's not doing the things we want him to do, or when it's not going the way we think it's supposed to go, he's not put off by us. He's not disappointed By our expectations, he's ready and willing to lift us up, to correct us, to put us back on the right path with love and grace and affection. So ask your questions. Confess your doubts. Meet Jesus, and he will lift you up. But in today's passage, the disciples didn't really know what was going on, right? Why he said what he said, why he was doing what he was doing. It was only after he had risen from the dead, after the Spirit came on them, that the picture started to come together. That's probably when John wrote a lot of this. But today, they're caught up in the celebration. Today, they're right alongside the crowds, worshiping and praising and giving thanks to God for what he's doing. We're going to come back in a minute to what Jesus did. But first, we're going to look at the next group of people. Because as all this celebration was happening, as all this joy was being proclaimed, There were people who weren't too happy with what was going on. That's the Pharisees. They were exasperated again at Jesus. And here's what it says in verse 19. The Pharisees said to one another, look. Sorry, nope. They say, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees were not excited about Jesus. They saw him as a troublemaker. They saw him as an insurrectionist. They saw him as a blasphemer. He was a threat. How could anyone follow him? Throughout the Gospel of John, we see Jesus and the Pharisees clashing over and over again because Jesus claims to be God. Jesus claims to be one with the Father. Jesus claims to have come from heaven to earth and that he's going to go back to heaven. He comes and forgives sin. He's doing other things that only God can do. Jesus got himself onto the Pharisees' hit list. And, ironically, Lazarus was also on the Pharisees' hit list. We heard about Lazarus last week. His name has shown up a couple times here. He's the one that Jesus raised from the dead. And the crowds saw Lazarus after he had died, walking again. And it was too much for the Pharisees to contain. The people were putting their hope in Jesus and expecting him to be their great Messiah. The Pharisees on the other hand, hated Jesus, didn't want anything to do with him. So they sought both his death and the death of Lazarus. This is the Jesus the Pharisees wanted. A dead Jesus. They didn't want him at all. So they devoted themselves to destroying Jesus and anything he touched. They denied all that he said. They explained away his miracles as works of the devil, as power from the enemy. They didn't want Jesus. And to various degrees, we might know people who don't want anything to do with Jesus. Who are antagonistic even toward Jesus or toward Christians or toward the church. Or you might be here today and that's you. You might want nothing to do with Jesus. You might want nothing to do with church, but you're sitting here today. And I'm really glad that you're here. Or Maybe you've seen just in general public spaces an antagonism toward Jesus. I remember one time I saw a shirt that just said, when Jesus comes back, we'll kill him again, which is irreverent, I know, but that's the sentiment of people who want nothing to do with him. Now, again, various degrees. I'm not saying that everyone who isn't a Christian feels that way, right? But there are various degrees and responses to Jesus, and the Pharisees certainly would have been buying all of that merchandise, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, our actions often betray something of that in ourselves as well. When we give in to sin, when we give in to temptation, when we choose our own pleasure and desires above and beyond God's desires, we're saying that we love that thing more than we love Jesus. Jesus. We're saying that we want that thing more than we want Jesus. So we might be more like the Pharisees in our own heart than we want to admit. As we seek our own control, our own power, our own choice, instead of submitting to the king. So the Pharisees are appalled that the people would be chasing after Jesus. They say, the world has gone after him. And this is hyperbole. Obviously, not the whole world was there. But for Passover week, it was probably the most accurate statement they could make because it was so packed with people coming to celebrate. But John uses that term of the world to great effect to show us the next part of the story. And this is now verse 20. The world is coming to Jesus, and so are the Greeks. Verse 20 says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So, sorry, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. The friend that I mentioned earlier with her questions, she reminds me a lot of these Greeks coming to seek Jesus. Both she and the Greeks are looking for answers. Greeks historically were known as pursuers of truth. They wandered the earth looking for new philosophies and new truths. And when they heard about what Jesus was doing, what he was saying, when the stories reached them, they wanted to meet him. They wanted to interview him. They wanted to get the details. So it seems that they went to the disciple that they thought maybe had the best connection to them. Philip was from Bethsaida, which is in the north of Israel. It's close to the Greek territories, right beyond the borders of, of Jewish land. Philip is a uh, Greek, na- uh, yeah, Greek name. Andrew is a Greek name. So they found these guys who maybe spoke Greek or at least could have been the connecting point for them to meet Jesus. And so these two, they work together and they go to Jesus. They say, the Greeks have come. they hear They want to see you. We're not sure why. We don't actually see entirely what they say to Jesus. But Jesus now knows the Greeks are here. And Jesus' response is super Interesting. This is is the Jesus that the Greeks want, right? They come with questions. They come seeking answers. And we can do the same thing. I just said, right? If we've got questions, ask them. If we have doubts, bring them forward. Jesus isn't put off by that. We can look for answers. It's good. But Jesus notices that something has changed now. And in verse 23, we see what he has to say. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Up until now, Jesus has consistently said, my time is not yet come. It's not time yet. As he did miracles, as he taught, as he traveled, he would remove himself from situations that might lead people uh, trying, to, uh, trying to advance their own agendas. He would step back. Right? This is what happened in John 6, which I just quoted a few minutes ago. The Jews tried to make him king, and he says, "Nope, not time yet. I'm leaving." Right? Jesus always walked in step with his Father in heaven. His ways were God's ways. He operated on his father's schedule, not his own. He did what the Father sent him to do, even when it was painful, even when it was costly. Now Jesus identifies the end is here. He's living in these final moments of the mission. This week was going to change the world. The Greeks coming to him signaled to Jesus that it was time. But he wasn't going to change the world with strength. He wasn't going to change the world with might and with power. He wasn't going to dominate the circumstances. No. He came with humility. So let's go back And let's see how Jesus presented himself. As the people were shouting, as they were singing, as the crowd surged, as the Pharisees watched, as the Greeks came, this is what Jesus did. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on the colt, uh, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is not the picture of a powerful, conquering king. A king should ride in on a war horse, A powerful and terrifying beast. But not so with Jesus. A king should be heads above the people, riding high and majestic. But not so with Jesus. He rode in on a donkey, hardly above the people walking next to him a donkey is a work animal it's a beast of burden so what is jesus doing here well he's showing the people who he really is here's the jesus the world really needs john quotes from zechariah 9 although his quote is condensed a little bit zechariah 9 actually uh, the prophecy says this rejoice greatly o daughter of zion Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Is that not what the people are doing? They're rejoicing. They're celebrating. But the question is, are they celebrating the real Jesus? The Jews had the wrong idea about Jesus. Jesus came riding on a donkey to signify that he was bringing peace. He was bringing humility, or he came in humility. And he was truly the king of Israel. The Jews got that right. That's not a problem. But he wasn't the king that the people expected. He wasn't the king that the people hoped for. The Jews hoped in the wrong Jesus. And before it sounds like I'm just laying the blame on them, how often do we do that? How often do we misplace our hope in the wrong Jesus? How often do we get upset when things don't go our way? How often do we get angry when it seems that God isn't answering our prayers? How often do we try to go about life on our own terms instead of God's? How often do we manipulate what God has said or who Jesus is so that he's a God of convenience? and affirmation, and accommodation. Because however we create him, we're making God the way we want, and that's idolatry. That's the wrong Jesus. We can make him into almost anyone we want him to be, but it won't really be him. We need to check our expectations about Jesus and ensure that we're following him for who he really is. The humble king who came to give up his life, not to take up a sword. So Jesus rides in on a donkey to demonstrate his purpose. And then he makes that critical statement in verse 23 about his mission. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified. Jesus knew that his mission was leading to death. He knew that his mission was leading to suffering. And he knew that he would be glorified through that. He would receive praise and honor and accolades and worship through that. The Jews were excited about Jesus because he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. And just a chapter earlier in uh, chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus says this illness that Lazarus has, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And it's true that Lazarus' illness, even though he died, did not lead to Lazarus' death, because Lazarus was raised from the dead. And people began to put their hope in Jesus, and trust and believe in Him. And God was receiving praise for that. But, it's interesting, that it was Lazarus' death... And what Jesus did by raising him from the dead, that started this snowball effect of the Pharisees wanting to see Jesus dead. So yes, the illness Lazarus had didn't lead ultimately to Lazarus' death, but it did lead to Jesus' death. It was through his own death that Jesus, the Son of God, would be glorified. Jesus knew that his death was not going to end in death, the same way Lazarus' death didn't actually end in death. But how can that be? How can this man's life, his death, lead to life for others? And that's where he goes in verse 24 Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is this grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies. When a farmer is sowing wheat, it's buried in the earth. And then, over time, it springs up, and it can produce hundreds of times over. And in the same way, Jesus will be buried in the earth once he has been crucified on the cross. And in a few days, he will burst from the tomb and bring life for so many more, more than hundreds of times over, for any and all who would come to him. When we submit to him, when we follow him, he gives us his life. He gives us eternal life. And we receive the honor of the Father. We are brought into the name of Jesus. And God looks on us as his children. We receive that position. And that is the greatest honor we could ever have. To belong to Jesus. To belong to the Father. To bear his name. And there will be a day when Jesus returns physically, visibly, triumphantly. And on that day, he will come as conqueror. He will come to set things right. And we will live as God's children in our Father's perfect and holy and good presence forever. It's going to be a terrifying day, but it's going to be such a good day for those who are found in Jesus. But we only belong to God we only receive life in Jesus when we give our life to him. We only receive life in Jesus. We actually only receive the life of Jesus who is life itself when we give up our life to him. When we compare the love we have for him to the love we have for the things of this world, this life, it's night and day difference. We live for Jesus. All else comes after him. And when we live like this, when we really live like this, people necessarily ask, why are you like this? (laughs) What's different about you? What do you have that I don't? People can see the life of Jesus in us when we live for Jesus. And we get to bring God glory and make him known through our life. So will we submit to his ways? Will we follow him? Will we let him direct our path even when it goes places we don't want to go? Will we follow him? Will we put our education and career and family and dreams in his capable hands? Will we follow him? Will we trust him in sickness and death and oppression? Will we follow him? When we don't understand, when it doesn't make sense, will we follow him? Will we trust him to save us from our sin? Will we follow him? See, Jesus didn't cling to his life Instead, he gave it up so that we could live. His death is necessary for us to live. The night before, he goes to the cross. Only a few days after today's section of reading, he prays, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away. If there's any other way, let's go that way. But not my will. Your will. Not what I want. What you want. Not my way. Yahweh. Jesus submits himself to the Father. Jesus understands that this is going to lead to life. And when we trust in Jesus, we glorify both Him and the Father because it's God's power and prerogative to save us. We can't do it ourselves, we don't have the strength. We don't have the knowledge or the wisdom or the power. We don't have the resources or the time. And sometimes we don't even care. We need Jesus. But that's what he comes for. That's what he offers to us. The Jews and the Greeks and the Pharisees and the disciples, they wanted their type of Jesus. So who is the Jesus that we want? And is he the Jesus we need? Is he the real Jesus? Because we need a king who's willing to give up his own life. We need a king who can save us from our sins. And that's who Jesus is. To take us from sin and death and deliver us to life and freedom. To make us no longer slaves of sin, but belonging to righteousness. Belonging to the Father bearing his name. Jesus might not be the king that we expect. He might not be the king that we hope for. But he is certainly the king that we need. And he is so much more. But we cling so tightly to our lives as though my life depends on me. We can cling on to a, ver- a version of Jesus that doesn't require us to suffer or get a little uncomfortable. So often, we don't want the real Jesus. But Jesus really wants us. And our lives depend on him. So don't lose it. Don't lose your life. Don't reject Jesus. Run toward him. Meet him. Today, maybe it's your first time hearing about him. Maybe today's the day you get to meet your Savior. Maybe you've heard about him for a while, and you've had questions, and you've been asking. You're like the Greeks. You want to know more, and you've come to this place, maybe with friends or on your own, whatever the situation. But you can meet Jesus today. Maybe you've been following him for a little while. You're starting the journey. You're caught in misunderstanding. You're caught learning and growing. Come back to Jesus. Maybe you've been following him a long time. Maybe things are going really well, and you feel like you're growing and just abounding in knowledge and wisdom, and your love for God is deepening. Don't lose focus on Jesus. Put your eyes back on him. Stay the course. Meet the real Jesus. Even when the crowds didn't fully understand, even when the disciples didn't fully understand, even when the Greeks were just curious and all the Pharisees wanted to do was kill him, Jesus came for them all. And Jesus comes for all of us. Jesus comes for all of us. So this Easter week, let's follow him. Let's see where he's going. Let's come back for Friday and Sunday. Let's see what Jesus has in store Because he is way more than we could ever hope for. He's way more than we could ever expect. And he's far better than anything we could imagine. We have a couple of reflection questions that I want to give us some time to. There's three questions on the board. I don't want you to spend time on all of them. I want you to pick one and let Jesus speak to you through that. And after we spend some time reflecting, we're going to go into a time of musical worship as well. So here are some questions for you.